Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Losing the Plot. I'm Leo Robertson. I find artists of all varieties I find interesting. They're usually writers, they don't have to be. And uh, we talk about their work, we talk about life, we talk about anything and everything. We lose the plot together, hence the title of the show. As always, we start with the latest of what's going on over at Aphotic Realm. Uh, issue number seven is out now, it's gruesome. Who doesn't love over-the-top 80s horror films? A punk band fights off a horde of possessed fans at a local concert. A makeout session at the cemetery takes a turn for the worst. Slashers, critters, demons, gore, hairspray. The 80s horror B-movie aesthetic is what issue 7 gruesome is all about, so do check that out. The Realm also has its own merch store right on the Aphotic Realm site itself. Uh, you can buy t-shirts, beanies, caps and tank tops. And if you check out the new Aphotic Realm Instagram, you can see yours truly sporting an Aphotic Realm t-shirt uh, in the dark grey heather colour. I think it's great. And uh, there's loads of cool other merch. I'm sure I will get other stuff too. And uh, I hope you will as well. Please do check out the merch in the store. Finally, I hope you will consider supporting Aphotic Realm on Patreon. As a patron, you'll get early access to podcast episodes such as this one. Um, you can also uh, get digital downloads of all Aphotic books as well. So do check that out. Please consider supporting Aphotic Realm on Patreon also. I wrote this thing. I hope you like it. Let's talk about it, yeah. Let's lose track. Losing the plot podcast. Losing the plot podcast. Losing the plot podcast. Talking to Leo. I'm extra specially excited to present my guest this episode. It's Kelly Robson. She's a Canadian speculative fiction writer living in Toronto. Uh, her debut novella, Gods, Monsters and the Lucky Peach, is out with Tor. She's working on the sequel now. Um, she won the Nebula Award in 2018 for her horror novel, A Human Stain. And really, she has any number of amazing stories in so many great venues. Do check them out wherever you can find them. And that's all you need to hear from me for now. So here's my chat with Kelly Robson. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, are you really in Oslo? I'm, uh, I've moved to Stavanger now. But yes, I'm in... No. <laughs> I'm in Norway. It's, uh, it's midnight here and it's just gone dark, but it's taking a long time to get dark now, which is nice. <laughs> Midnight sun time. Yeah, how is it in how is it in Toronto? Toronto is great. Um, Toronto is uh, surprisingly far south. I grew up in um, Alberta, central Alberta, which is a lot farther north than here. Mm -hmm. So um, to me, uh, Toronto seems incredibly, incredibly far south. So we don't get those long summer days that uh, you know they're long enough but they're not nearly as impressive as they are farther north when did you get back from china 
I just got back on Thursday. So it was, um, let's see, it's Monday now. So it was about four days ago. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. I had a few days off. So I, today was my first day back in the office and, um, I'm not hurting too terribly. Right. Uh, being in China was just fantastic. We had an amazing time. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, it's not your first time there. No, no. Uh, I was in China last year in, um, 2018 in June, also um, invited by the same publisher, the Future Affairs um, uh, Administration, mm -hmm. which is a Beijing publisher. And they took us to a county called Danjai, um, which is in southwestern China and a place where they really don't get a lot of um, uh, tourists from outside of China. Mm -hmm. And so that was an just an amazing trip. We were in this rural, highly rural area um, with uh, these just unbelievably steep valleys and mountains. And the mountains were often covered in terraced rice paddies. Mm -hmm. So it was just, it was like another world, truly. Like nothing I'd ever seen before. That's cool. What, why did they take you to that specific region? Well, it was an initiative through the, in cooperation with the local government, um, which was intended to publicize the area and draw tourists to it. It's um, an anti-poverty initiative. So mm -hmm. the company that owns the publisher um, has a, like a cooperative relationship with the local governments in Danjai. Um, they have built a tourist village there showing off in the style of the, um, the local indigenous culture. Um, which is intended to bring to bring tourists into the area to show them uh, what that culture is like and 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 to provide a place for tourists to gather and see the handicrafts and the dances and to to buy handicrafts and and to see basically demonstrations of the Miao culture, which is uh, very unique and very cool. So uh, they brought us there to. Um, tour these anti-poverty initiatives mm -hmm. to uh, meet some of the people to learn a few things about the indigenous culture. And then they sent us home to write stories inspired by the trip. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did. And uh, it was amazing. My story was actually published in Clark's World last September. It's called A Study in Oils. Mm -hmm. And it, um, I just had an amazing time. And I hope that my story shows... <laughs> shows what an amazing, glorious place it is, and and how worthwhile it is to to visit. I I think it's uh I think it's my favorite story of yours. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> it's um, <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. Was it quite a was it quite a daunting thing to do that, or were you comfy with the idea? Well, you know, I didn't want. When I wrote the story, I was very clear with myself that I wasn't going to try to write from the perspective of a Miao person because that just simply, you know, wasn't wasn't possible for me to understand where where those people are coming from. Mm -hmm. But um, so I, my main character, as you know, is uh, a Chinese uh, young Chinese man who grew up on the moon, 
mm-hmm. and uh, who 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 basically is on the run, and he comes to this this village in Danjai and uh, takes refuge there. And um, much like me, he does some ridiculous tourist things like going too fast on the roads and getting sick and falling <laughs> in a rice paddy as I did. <laughs> And, and, and eventually comes to, uh, to know himself better by having, having the leisure to truly, truly look into his own character. Um, so yeah, I, 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 as I was taking the view of an outsider looking into that culture, I didn't find it too daunting. What I did find was that, um, what I did find daunting was the publisher asked us if we possibly could have the story ready in a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was really hard, but I got it done. I got it written in a month. Wow. Um, do you, how do you respond to deadlines typically with, with your fiction writing? Uh, I try not to miss deadlines. Um, if I absolutely have to get something done, I will get it done. But generally, I like to take my time with stories because I really want to get them right. Mm-hmm. And so if I don't have to get something done on a short timeline, I will take my time with them. Mm-hmm. And and just um, I, I, I find that if I try to rush, I go off in the wrong direction quite often. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, a little bit painful because then you have to claw it back and, and uh, throw out a whole bunch of words and try again. Well, and how do you know when you've gone in the wrong direction? Is it purely intuitive? I think it's purely intuitive. Um, Usually I can feel when I'm gone in the wrong direction. It takes, it can possibly take, you know, a thousand, two thousand, five thousand, ten thousand words sometimes (laughs) to realize that I've gone in the wrong direction. Um, But yeah, it is intuitive. If the story, if the story isn't moving along, if I, if I can't easily go from scene to scene, then, uh, then I know that they, I've taken a wrong turn and I have to backtrack to, to a point where I feel my, my footing is solid under me. It is purely intuitive. Mm-hmm. And I think we learn that by reading. I think that's the only way to learn it. Right. The reason Everyone's I... different, of course. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, no, <laughs> no. Yeah, no. is different. I never want to feel like I'm... I never want to say, you know, this is how thou shalt write. Oh, for sure. Do you feel that then, like, do you think it's important for every writer to develop like their own technique, at least to some extent, in order to write? Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 for sure. Because we're all so different. We all have different thought processes and and different ways of thinking about story. It's it's a it's we all struggle to um, to find our own voices. So yeah, everybody absolutely is different. And the more we talk with other writers, the more we realize that. Mm-hmm. What works for someone like Connie Willis, who is amazing. I've heard her talk about writing so much. And I, though I respect her and though she is one of the writers who influenced me so greatly, mm-hmm. um, when she talks about writing, I just don't recognize anything she's saying. It just doesn't, I don't think about it the same way she does. Wow. Yeah. And so, and yet you, you must have learned from her stories, but you don't agree with her in writing methods. Is that right? Yeah, she's really a plot-based writer. She thinks a lot about plot and um, I think about character. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Hmm. 
Uh, okay, I'm going to jump around a bit, but I recently yeah, yeah. watched your uh, your Nebula acceptance speech, which was beautiful. And Thank you. Connie Willis is in the audience, right? Yeah, she was sitting right right at my feet, practically. The, the table that she was sitting at was, you know, right right in front of me. That's absolutely wild. How did it feel? It was amazing. It was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. Uh, it felt, honestly, it felt like, you know, this is a dream. Somebody's going to wake <laughs> me up and I'm going to, you know, be woken up from a coma. <laughs> And this will all have been a dream. It, it, that's surreal, right? Like it, you can hardly believe that it's actually happening. And yet you speak so much in your speech about the importance of community and about other writers and about being part of an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I truly believe that. Um, we truly are all in it together. We're not competitors with each other. If you write the world's best story tomorrow and publish the world's best story tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That only benefits me. It benefits me as a writer because I can read that story and see what you did and be inspired by it. Mm-hmm. It certainly benefits me as a reader because I can read that story and love it. And, and I'm a reader first. I love to read. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also benefits, benefits me financially too, because when, when somebody reads that story, they're going to want more. They're going to want to read more, right? The only thing that puts people off reading is bad stories. Mm. I, I want everyone to write fantastic stories. I want people to beat me in the awards because <laughs> <laughs> I win. I win that way. I, I truly do believe that. That's not Pollyanna, but that is true. I, I can tell that that's what, you're, what you think. And also that, um, it's really interesting that that's the way the art world works, because I know that with your writing and with your world building, you think very much about economics and restrictions. Mm. Right. Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's, um, there's a fantastic book by, uh, anthropologist David Graeber mm-hmm. called debt, the first 5,000 years, mm-hmm. which I highly recommend to everyone in the world, but <laughs> especially to writers, mm-hmm. because it is about that, these big questions. What is it to owe a debt to someone? What do we owe to each other? What do other people owe to us? How do we have relationships with each other? Mm-hmm. So this is a book by an anthropologist who basically debunks traditional economic theory, economics 101, with actual, um, <laughs> with actual anthropological evidence about humans, human economic interactions. And it's absolutely fascinating. I just, I, I've read it three times and I'm going to read it for the fourth. I just know it. It's <laughs> a great book. So yeah, I think about it a lot. What do we owe each other? I think that's one of the big questions in fiction. Absolutely. Has, has your own personal perspective on that question changed over time? Oh, I don't know. Um, I mean, certainly in the last couple of years with the horrifying rise of, of, of fascism in the West, mm-hmm. um, I have become less tolerant of people espousing horrifying views. Mm. So whereas 10 years ago, I might've said, you know, free speech is everything. A person should be able to say whatever 
they want or whatever they believe and not be gagged. I don't think I believe that anymore. Um, it's, you know, we, we've seen too many horrible things over the past few years. Um, that's changed. I don't think that's economic though, but, uh, I think, I think we owe each other. We owe each other respect, um, the same respect that we would have them show us, which is just basically the golden rule. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for that answer. That was a very difficult question. I mean, that's something that you explore in your fiction, of course. So it's not, it's not an easy one to answer. Um, I see in several of your stories, I mean, in particular in your, in, uh, God's Monsters and the Lucky Peach that you like to pair like uh maybe older crotchety characters with young idealistic uh <laughs> hopeful people um yes. and I've, I've heard in another podcast you spoke a little about the balance between uh boomer and millennial generations um mm-hmm. where, where do you think that you fall on the line of like uh, bootstrapping and people need to pick themselves up or people need help <laughs> and people should be optimistic. Oh, wow. Um, so this is a very North American question right now mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, unlike places in Europe didn't necessarily have a baby boom after World War II, like uh, North America did, like Canada and the U.S. did. Um, and I don't know what the demographics of millennials are in Europe either, but the fact is it's a big issue here in Canada and the U S and part of it is, 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 uh, boomers having the wealth of resources that younger people simply don't have access to. We, we, we are now looking at, um, uh, the, uh, the elder people having a lifestyle that we can never possibly grasp. So, um, how does that work? How, how do we, we can't tell older people to give it up. We can't tell older people that they need to step aside and retire and to allow, um, to allow younger people to, to step into their jobs and responsibilities but this switchover of, of, of demographic power is, is a difficult one to negotiate. And I don't know where it's going. You know, I'm kind of looking at it from a bit of the outside because I'm Gen X. You know, mm. I'm 51. Um, I have, I've, I've, the boomers have got it all in front of me and the millennials have got it all behind me. So I'm just kind of observing it from this, <laughs> this vantage point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in God's Monsters and Lucky Peach, found really interesting the question of if somebody has the knowledge and the lifestyle and 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 the um, wisdom that you want as a young person, is there a way to force them to become your mentor? Which is what essentially young twenty-three-year-old Kiki does to eighty-three-year-old men. Mm-hmm. And, um, and <laughs> I think she's successful. She <laughs> yeah. does manage to force men to become her mentor. It's not a very comfortable place for men to be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I don't think she's happy with the results, but 
but a relationship is definitely forged against men's will. Mm -hmm. And I find that interesting. See, I, I kind of thought she was secretly happy about it. <laughs> I think she is in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that, is that notion of, oh, like, I, I want to be left alone and do only what I want, but I also kind of want somebody to notice how amazing <laughs> I am at it, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, she, um, she did, at the end of God's Monster's Lucky Peach, come to, come to actually care what Kiki thinks of her. And that comes to quite a surprise to Min to realize that she actually did care that mm. Kiki was unhappy with her or judging her. So, yeah. Um, so I, I thought of how to summarize that book in just in a way that I could quickly inform my listeners. It's, uh, it's about time traveling from the future back to Mesopotamia um, mm -hmm. in order to study riverbeds. That's yeah. that's the best I could do in a sentence, but it can't be summarized in a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> no, few books can. Yeah. Few books. Um, it's about uh, I like I like the idea of time travel, but I like the idea of time travel with no consequences. Hmm. I want to be able to go to the past and look around it, poke around, and see what was going on there. Mm -hmm. But I don't want any of the bad things to happen. I don't want to, uh, you know, disturb anyone's lives. I don't want to uh, get sick myself. I don't want, uh, you know, to, to do without indoor plumbing for very long. So mm. in a way, it's kind of my, um, Anna Lee Newitz calls it mundane time travel. It's time travel that, you know, there's no worries about affecting the future or changing your past or anything like that. Mm. But the thing about time travel is if you go anywhere, if you, if you jump into people's lives, you're going to affect them. And if you do it in any significant way, I think that's kind of wrong. Um, so there's some ethical, ethical questions around time travel that I kind of get into a little bit, mm. but there's also the idea of, <laughs> there's this thing I used to work for ecological scientists for 15 years, mm -hmm. which heavily informs the book. Mm -hmm. There's this thing that ecological scientists who are doing ecological restoration, um, do it's called adaptive management. And it's the idea of if you are managing a landscape, managing an ecosystem, that you basically um, make small changes and you watch to see what happens and then you adjust. So it's this idea of um, long-term, very careful choices made towards, uh, towards a goal. It's adaptive management, what that is called. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking that with time travel, it'd be a fantastic tool because you could actually... Um, jump back in time, get data for that, bring it forward in time, apply the data, and then see what happens. Mm -hmm. So I'm not explaining it very well, but I think even, even with mundane time travel, there's still a lot of great things you could do with it, aside from the delicious, wonderful tourism opportunities. Mm. It almost seems like you've 
you proved that there's no such thing as time travel that can't affect. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, I think so. When mm. there's humans around, you know, you're gonna you're gonna disturb them no matter what. Well, there's there's a great line in it, which is something like different time periods are just countries that we try to colonize. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's a, yeah, it's a take on the past as another country. They do things differently there. Mm-hmm. And mine, uh, my version of that is the past is another country. We want to colonize it. Mm. And we do. Honestly, we do. Do you think that we do it? That we do it like in reality, perhaps, in the way that we tell different narratives about the past, maybe? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, medieval London had this myth about itself that the first settlers in London were from Troy, were Trojans, mm-hmm. right? And they weren't. <laughs> they weren't. But uh, it was this great story that um, that people in London would tell about London to make it seem, you know, more cool, right? Mm-hmm. So essentially, it's 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 cultural appropriation, medieval uh, medieval English people appropriating, you know, this myth for their own uses. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my own family, uh, my last name is Robson. Um, all of my relatives, all of my Robson relatives will tell you that we're Scottish, <laughs> that the Robson family were Scottish and, and, you know, they feel very special about kilts and various things. They've never even been to Scotland, but we're not, we're not Scottish. We're from Northern England. Mm-hmm. The Robsons are. So, you know, we, we love to tell stories about ourselves to, to, to make ourselves more interesting to ourselves. I think that's a natural human thing. It's not necessarily good, but it's natural. That was going to be my next question, because I saw also that you mentioned that human beings are, to some extent, storytelling machines. Yeah, we impose we impose story on the world to make uh, to make sense of it. We absolutely are. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that just the way it is? Is it good? Is it bad? Mm -hmm. I, I think. I think it's value neutral. Uh, I think that it can be bad when um, we're walking down the street and maybe somebody bumps into us or is rude to us. We tell ourselves stories about why that happened. You know, maybe they didn't like the way they, that I was dressed or maybe, uh, you know, they saw me from afar and thought that I, you know, looked like a nasty person. So they bumped into me. But the fact is that usually it has absolutely nothing to do with us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that can be negative, that we're imposing narrative on a situation that, that doesn't require a narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, when we're trying to, you know, make sense of our past or make sense of, you know, the reason behind who we are and, and, and what we like, then, then it is good to impose a narrative on things and tell ourselves stories about ourselves or it's how we get to know each other. When you and I sit down, we, we tell each other our stories and I have some good ones. They usually involve barfing, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's natural for sure. I, w- I would say, yeah, value neutral, sometimes good, sometimes bad. 
Another thing that um, you've covered in uh, in your discussions about perspectives and narratives, and in particular with God's Monsters and Lucky Peach, is the idea of uh, utopias and dystopias. Mm. And um, this story takes place in what is a utopia for you, but it's uh, it's been a dystopia for others. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's really interesting you know it turns out that if you if you use the word hell to describe a city um which i do in god's monsters lucky peach there are a lot of underground cities and uh the collective term for that that i use is hell there are habs which are above ground there are hives which are just slightly below ground and there are hells which are deep below ground Hmm. and i make it quite clear um in the in the book, when they visit the hell, uh, they visit specifically Bangladesh hell. That is a fantastic place. That is beautiful. It's vibrant. It's amazing. Got good food. Great quality of life. Lots of wonderful people. Um, but if you use the word hell, people will assume will will take you literally, which is quite funny. Um, <laughs> the sequel that I'm writing is going to show that that world. Uh, the world of 2267 in a lot more detail. So, um, so that'll be fun because I'm really interested in showing that off. Um, but it's a world where it's a post scarcity world there. Nobody is starving. Everybody has enough to eat. Um, there's no war, uh, freedom of movement. Absolutely. You decide where you want to live. If you don't like the, the hell that you're living in, you can move to another place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an economic world. The world economics are based on the idea that in a post-scarcity society where you can print anything on a molecular level, that um, the only thing that is worth anything is human time. Mm-hmm. Um, and this... This comes from David Graeber, uh, the economics book that I was blathering on about earlier. But it also comes from my background in professional services. I've always worked with people, companies where the only thing that we have to sell is people's intellectual output, um, consulting companies. I've worked with architects and with um, uh Ecologists, I've worked with IT people and currently working with um, nurses. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, you know, it's not a bad way of looking at the idea of value. How much time does it take you to do the job that you're doing? I think we could make that work. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. It's kind of, um, I suppose it's kind of, do you, do you think it's kind of leveling in terms of class as well? Or though I suppose that people who have more money can still live longer in that world. So they still have more time, but is it kind of flatter economically speaking? If you think about it. I think it is. I think it is because in a post scarcity world, I mean, uh, a few things do become become scarce. Um, 
space becomes scarce because in a post-scarcity world, if, if the only thing that's of value is people's time and the uh, basically the, the haves, hives, and, hives and hells, which are basically independent city-states, are trading with each other on the basis of um, what professional services they have to offer each other, then um, they would definitely want to encourage overpopulation because the more people they have, the more economic sway they have. Mm -hmm. So then um, habitable space would come to a premium. But if you or I are the kind of people who, you know, I need a big apartment, I need, you know, 2000 square feet all to myself, then I can make the decision that I might want to move to a hell that can offer me that, which would be a hell with a lower population, perhaps a reducing population which wouldn't be able to offer me a very great quality of life, there would be trade-offs, but I'd have my 2,000 square foot apartment. Whereas if I decide that what I want is a really fantastic cultural life, uh, where there are, you know, fantastic live performances going on all the time, where I can go to galleries and things are hopping and there's lots of people, then I might want to move to a place like Bangladesh Hill, mm-hmm. which is basically the Manhattan of my world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I might have to live in a very small space, but I would still have the life that I really wanted. Mm. You can't have it all, but everybody can make the trade-offs that work for them. Yeah, that's such an yeah. interesting lesson. I I watched a podcast with you on YouTube in which you discussed it was specifically about world building and with this novella. Um in which you talked with no notes for a full hour about this world that you constructed yourself. It was, it was <laughs> quite a thing to watch. I mean, I'd, I'd read the book. I'd read, I've read most of your stories, but to hear you do that, I was like, wow, she put so much work into this world. It was, it <laughs> felt that like. That was, um, dive sorry. into world building. Yes. And yeah, it felt that like you could have written a longer book just on the world and how it works. Well, yeah. Um, I think it's cool. It's a neat system. And when you, when you, when you create a a system that really has a very simple um, basis, then it all just kind of flowers out from that, right? Like Mm. um, if it, if it has a simple yet solid basis, then, you know, it, it seems complex, but really it's just a simple system that has implications. Yeah. I'm, I'm very happy with my world. I'm going to write more things in it. Brilliant. I hope so. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Well, that was another thing I wondered is, do you spend a lot of time before writing the story, crafting the world, or does the story also inform you of the rules in which it has to take place? Yeah. Um, the story definitely informs that. Um, I, when I research, I like to read a lot of nonfiction. I find Nonfiction is is where I do a lot of my reading for pleasure these days. Mm-hmm. And when I'm reading nonfiction for pleasure, what I'm looking for is those systems. Um, I don't need to know the details if they don't connect to each other. Um, but yeah, once I have the idea of um, this, I call it professional services world. The idea that the only thing that is of value is human time. And then you start writing about that world. Yeah, it all tends to fall into place. 
if you have a solid basis and you understand how systems work. Hmm. Um, yeah. I've also seen these terms and I've, read, I've seen the terms hells, habs, hives. They, they've cropped up in other stories of yours. And mm-hmm. um, I saw also that you wrote that, you know, some of your stories take place in the same universe, but separated by hundreds, thousands of years sometimes. <laughs> yeah. How does that, how does that, does that just happen? Is it planned? Um, well, once I, once I got the idea for this economic system, you know, when you're writing a story that's set in the far future, which is, um, uh, who, which, which one is, oh, We Who Live in the Heart, yeah, which is set um, in a far-flung solar system that's not defined, a, they, they refer to, in the story, they refer to old Earth, in quotation marks. Um, I tend to think of it as about 800 to 1,000 years in the future. Um, it is absolutely connected because that economic system is um it it informs my whole world building for that as well i just i really like the, the economic system and i like it because it's this nice solid basis for sticking characters into and seeing how much trouble or how unhappy they can be when they really you know, there's nothing really external making them unhappy. It's just their own humanity. So in that story, We Who Live in the Heart, the two main characters are Ricci, who is a workaholic, who is <laughs> trying to get away from, um, get, get away from basically the rat race because she, she can't handle it. Mm-hmm. Every time she gets a job, she just works herself to the bone and, uh, you know, has to be hospitalized. And Doc, who is this kind of throwback uh, maverick person who you know, used to be a doctor but gave it all up and just, just wants the open road, um, which is a very human kind of thing to do as well. Mm. So, um, you know, there's nothing external making these people unhappy. There's nothing external, you know, uh, that is forcing them out um, into a very precarious living situation where they're, they've actually made a habitat inside what amounts to a space whale living in the atmosphere of this um, frozen planet. Mm-hmm. But they're there because they're humans and some humans, you know, uh, humans have to work to be happy. I think that's, I think no human being is happy without effort. And for some of us, it takes a lot of effort. And for some of us, we're just never happy. Is that some, are those the kind of lessons that you learn about yourself from having lived in different places? Cause now you moved to Toronto. When did you move? We moved in 2013. Right. Yeah. Um, I think it's one of those lessons that you learn as you get older, maybe. And when you've, you know, spent your whole life working to be happy and you realize how hard it is, I don't know, Hmm. maybe, I mean, maybe it's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm right. I think I'm right. But, uh, yeah, I think it's something you just learn as you get older, talk to your friends and see them struggling to be happy. Yeah, I think it's, yeah. 
I mean, I'm um, I only turned thirty, so I I don't know how, I don't know how old or young that makes me to anyone, but certainly, <laughs> um, certainly, oh. yeah, you see that, yeah. It is. It's hard. It's hard. Mm-hmm. It gets easier. Um, how, how does it get easier? May I ask? I think you know yourself better. Mm-hmm. Um, you tend to know your patterns better. You, uh, if you're observant and you, you really, uh, watch yourself react to things, you watch yourself succeed and fail at things. You tend to get an idea of what things will make you happy and what things won't. Um, and part of that, and here's, here's my big, you know, pearl drop of wisdom as it were, Mm -hmm. is, um, when you are happy, when you're really happy, notice it, pay attention, remember how it feels. Cause often I think when we're happy, we're in the moment and we don't notice it mm-hmm. and it goes away. And then we're not even sure it was even there. But if you are happy, notice it, revel in it and, and do some thinking about, you know, what brought you to that happy space, and then you can replicate it. Wow, that's really good advice. So, and, and then <laughs> and then try and get back there, right? Yeah, which which isn't necessarily easy. I mean, there's also such thing as mental illness. I have an anxiety disorder, and I have some really fantastic meds for it. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, before I went on the meds, there wasn't much I could do about it. It was just simple brain chemistry that was um, making me really anxious all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank goodness for the meds. Yeah, I guess some things can't be. That that kind of brings us back to that balance question as well. As some things cannot be, I, I suppose, like as much as possible, you should work to fix the things of your own life on your own. But some things just cannot be done solo. Yeah, um, they really can't. Um, for example, uh, when I was having bad anxiety one of the symptoms that I have is intrusive thoughts. Mm. So I'll be walking down the street and everything will be perfectly fine and there won't be necessarily anything going through my head that is making me anxious. But all of a sudden I will imagine what it would be like to trip and knock my teeth out on Mm. the ground, right? Those kind of intrusive thoughts. Mm. And all of a sudden, you know, my adrenaline will spike and I'll start, you know, it's not, not something that I would want to think about, but it comes. And when that starts happening, you know, 20, 30, 40, 100 times a day, then that's a problem. So. Yeah. Wow. Went to my doctor and got some meds and they work. I'm just really lucky that my meds work. So, yeah. I mean, I feel like, well, do you feel that as a writer, you're somehow, I feel that writers are kind of obligated not to make their mind up about things (laughs) in order to explore them? Yeah. I mean, that's for sure. They're it's good to know, it's good to know what you don't know. Um, and to, to not make things simple when they're not simple. Um, but a lot of readers pick up a story, pick up a book looking for a little bit of wisdom too, right? Mm -hmm. Looking for, looking for a little, a little, 
a, a hand, you know, reach that reaches out mm-hmm. and, and is familiar to them. Um, you know, whether that's an acknowledgement of we all have these questions, we all have these fears, we all have these um, things that worry us, we're all human together, or whether it's, um, you know, a little bit of wisdom saying, you know, things generally will be okay, um, not necessarily painless, but things will be okay. Sometimes that's good too. Well, I think your um, your story, Skin City, which came out recently, mm. um, I read that recently, and um, yeah, it was just it was a reminder to me about how great like hopeful science fiction can be because I think that um, is <laughs> without spoiling it, like the the narrative is this seemingly young, like hopeless romantic, and everyone's like, oh, she just hasn't learned yet, like it's this is going to blow up in her face. And your story is just like, no, you know what? This time she was right. This time it's going to work out. So how about that? Because if nobody ever knows, then nobody ever knows if something's going to be great either. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and isn't, isn't assuming the worst also just a crutch, right? Absolutely. Like who is saying, who is saying that, that humans are terrible and that, and so, yeah, so there's, there's this crotchety old person who's um so quite frankly you know in this in this future toronto that i imagine in skin city this this very elderly crotchety old person has the values of of today and they're quite cynical values Mm -hmm. and it turns out that her values are quite outdated she's saying that you know there's no such thing as love and everybody's in it just for themselves and uh you know we all have to just watch out for number one and that's you know who Mm. Um, uh, but Cass, my main character, she knows better. She's young and she's ideal, idealistic. And it turns out that she is right. That, uh, you know, mm-hmm. things can work out. I, yeah, I, I think that's a really great message. And I agree that this, um, the cynicism is so deadening. And I think that, uh, particularly, with younger people there's like a desire to assert the fact that you know something and there's a confusion about the fact that being wise about the world means being negative about it (laughs) it's it's so crappy it's Mm. um it's so easy to be negative Mm. it's it's anybody can be grumpy it's easy to be grumpy um and it's it's easy to to expect the worst but what if, what if we did expect the best? What if, what if we held other people to our standards? And, and what, what if we walked down the street, um, not necessarily with a smile on our face, but certainly with good intentions toward the world, then the world is a better place. There's just no doubt about it in my mind. Hmm. But, so I'm glad you read that story. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, so am I. <laughs> It's uh, it's really lovely because I think also I mean the, the the skins of the story are the projections that each individual can apply onto the world, which mm-hmm. uh, an interesting kind of literal way of uh, explaining probably what we all do anyway, um, but also 
you know, that can so easily go wrong. And I think it would be so easy to take that concept and say this is a catastrophe. Um, but it's it's more complex than that. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, we all have different tastes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on a really just, just a pure aesthetic level, what I think is a beautiful city isn't necessarily what you think is a beautiful city. And, and I was thinking about this when um, this lovely uh, Toronto writer named Michael Rowe, who is this wonderful urbane gay man, it's this wonderful house in, in Cabbage Town that is, is just absolutely um, enviable. It's gorgeous. So he was saying, and I was so surprised by this because I wouldn't have assumed it from him. So he was saying that he misses the days when Toronto was kind of grubby and dangerous and, you know, there was strip clubs and that sort of thing. And um, I just kind of looked at him and thought, you know, why? And I suppose to him, he kind of thinks that that danger is a memory of, you know, when he was young and it's kind of sexy. Mm. But I kind of thinking, I thought, yeah, but dangerous to who? Like, that is not a world that is accepting of me as a woman walking down the street. So you like that, but I don't like that. Mm. So just on a pure aesthetic level, what works for him certainly doesn't work for me. Yeah, and also you also maybe you like the memory of it more than you enjoyed the reality when it was happening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, so why not visit it, right? Yeah. Why not visit it? Interesting. I like that idea. And I think it's actually really possible too, being able to skin a city for your own preferences and just overlaying virtual reality on top of the surfaces that are already there. Oh, yeah. But this is interesting because we were talking a little bit about, um, you know, negative patterns and things. And, uh, you know, here in... Stavanger, everyone kind of keeps it to themselves in Norway in general. And so because mm. I really love to read, I can sit for many evenings just reading going, oh, this is the best. And it feels amazing. And I'll do that for <laughs> I'll do that for like a week and then I go, oh, my God, where is everyone? What have I been doing? Um, <laughs> so I kind of think that um, I, I think you explore that in the story as well. This idea that customization or just purely getting what you want all the time is also its own form of disaster because mm. you become really weak and sensitive to uh, disturbances which are going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. No, this is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it is good to not get what we want all the time, um, especially when we come to understand that some of the things that we really enjoy in life are the surprises. Mm. Um, I, uh, As I was just traveling in China recently, I've come to realize over the past bunch of trips that I've made that what I really love are is on a trip is just not to know what's coming next and then to be utterly surprised and delighted by the things that I come across. And uh, if you're customizing the world to your own preferences, you're going to reduce that. And then you are cutting off a source of joy. So... Yeah. That's definitely something I think about too. I can tell from what I've read of your your essays and the the nebula, nebula acceptance speech and even the way that we're talking now that you have a real um, generous spirit and especially when it comes to the writing world. Um, and am I correct that you mentor writers now? 
Um, yeah, well, through SIFWA, which is Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America, mm. um, uh, of which I'm a board member, but um, I didn't have anything to do with actually putting the program into place, it was the brainchild of Sarah Pinsker, mm. who is a writer who is absolutely wonderful. Um, she, uh, has developed this, um, mentorship program for SIFWA. There's two prongs to it. One is a mentorship, uh, like a short term couple of days mentorship pairing at the Nebula conference, which this year was in Los Angeles and next year it'll be in Los Angeles as well, where they pair people up, um, a more experienced writer and a less experienced writer. Um, just for the length of the conference, just so that they new writer might have a friendly face, um, you know, that the old writer, older writer, or, you know, more experienced because it's not necessarily an age thing. Uh, the more connected writer would be able to show them around and, and give them, you know, a nice footing to, to be in a nice welcome at the conference. So that's the short term one. And then the, the longer term one is a three month mentorship pairing. Um, again, um, between two writers. And I've done that, um, once I had two writers, uh, last year Mm -hmm. for that, which was really great. And, um, I had a mentorship pairing at the Nebula conference and I'm just starting another, um, mentorship on the new, the new three month session that's starting right now. It's uh, super great. Yeah. How are you? You're finding it. You're enjoying it. It's, Yeah, no, I'm really enjoying it. I mean, I kind of wonder, um, it's, it's hard to support someone if they don't specifically know what they need to get out of it. Mm. Um, so with my mentorships, my previous mentorships, it was just a lot of encouragement and just, yeah, you can do this thing, keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, talking about ways to find time for writing, that sort of thing. Um, and I hope that I, you know, was able to help them in more specific ways, but even just encouragement is a great thing. So, yeah, I mean, I hope they got as much out of it as I did because it's just fantastic to talk to someone who cares as much about what you're doing as you do. Right. Like, isn't, Oh yeah. This is why we're talking right now too, Leo. Absolutely. Because we care about it so much and it's the best thing in the world. <laughs> it's true. And it's, um, as, as much as it seems like there are so many writers, it's a really rare thing to find somebody who's so passionate about it. I find mm. just in, in, mm. in general. Um, yeah. Um, not everybody's, I know, like not everybody attacks the world in the same way, but I think that almost everybody would admit if they're trying to write, they're doing it because they think it's an important thing to be spending their time doing. But that's mm. got to be true. They wouldn't be doing it. But I just love it. I really do too. I find also that uh, <laughs> maybe it's a, a, a because I'm here, but I communicate in books. Like I send people books all the time and I ask for books. So it's like, <laughs> it's like a main mode of communica- communication. And if I ever see somebody, 
feels, I don't know if you ever see this, but if you see somebody and it feels like they're struggling with something that you did before and they're trying to articulate something that they can't quite find the words for it. And then I go, oh, I found the words for that in this book. Maybe you would like mm. to read that. Um, nice. Yeah. Do you have a, do you have a go-to? What are, what are the books that you? Do you know, I find that the most, at least I guess for people around my age or a bit younger, I find that, uh, the the outsider by Camus is a really important one. Hmm. Just when you um I think when you get into the adult world and you're trying to navigate you're like this this just seems really kind of hypocritical and confusing and it seems like people are not really being honest with themselves and I think you you desire to look at the underpinning arguments beneath the way people interact and you go yeah you know a lot of this is hypocritical and a lot of like a lot of people have to to a certain extent delude themselves in order to function i mean maybe we all do that a little bit and i think that um when you're a young man you need to kind of see that and then for a little while you feel really better than everyone else because you're like yeah they're all just they don't really understand that this is all pointless and then you go do you know what and then you go do you know what it's actually more fun if you find a point anyway and nobody like nobody loves it if you walk around going yeah there's no i hope you realize that what you're doing is pointless you know but (laughs) <laughs> doing that edgelord thing nobody loves an edgelord oh, oh it's the worst you know i was just um i was doing i was reading i started reading this book because it's something i wanted to tackle in a story it's uh, the conspiracy against the human race by thomas Lagotti. i don't know if you know it oh no but i'm writing it down oh i i, I don't know if you would want to read it or not because it's essentially so and other people have told me that it was the inspiration for uh one of the characters in True Detective season one. I don't know if you've seen that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, exactly. It's so just like existence is a mistake and all of that. So that's essentially oh the... Oh my God. That's, that's like the... Ligotti gathers like all the kind of core philosophy for that, which is a message I just absolutely hate. I just hate <laughs> it. And and um, just the... There was a sentence in that I quite liked, which was that like nobody's ever really proved that life is is or isn't worth living um but like i either way i guess you should just kind of do it anyway and oh, i thought that is so so funny when we started talking about this mm-hmm. when when you were you know talking about Camus and 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 the whole edgelord thing yeah i was thinking about uh true detective mm-hmm. and then and then you bring up this thomas Lagotti and mm-hmm. true, its connection to true detective it's so funny um do you know the writer Peter Watts? Yes, I do. Because Blind Sight was another, I, I, I don't know, it's, it's similar in, in tone somehow. Is that right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> exactly. So I love Peter. Peter's a personal friend. He's great. And it's um, it's so funny because he subscribes to a lot of this Edgelard stuff. Mm-hmm. And when we were watching, we were watching True Detective season one, actually over at his place. Mm-hmm. And every time one of the characters would get into one of the like this negative existentialist bullshit, mm-hmm. all three of us, Alex, my wife, myself and Peter's wife, Caitlin, our heads just swiveled to look <laughs> at Peter. And we're all like, did you write this? Is this you? But the funny thing is that though he subscribes to that kind of stuff and he'll 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 spout it. Mm-hmm. He does it with the greatest verb and joy you would ever see in a human being. <laughs> he is not that person. He takes a great deal of joy out of life. Mm-hmm. He loves 
cats. He loves furry animals. He loves his life. Mm-hmm. He's not an edgelord, but he'll spout it. It's so weird. He'll, so funny. He'll spout it in life or he addresses it in his fiction? Both. Right. <laughs> Both. It's so funny. But he's not a depressed guy. He's, he's, he's you know, a, a wonderful, engaged, loving human being who lives for his cats and is a good husband and, mm-hmm. you know, is a good guy. So funny. Interesting. So, I don't know. I, I don't. I mean, he really does believe what he says when he, you know, spouts this existentialist bullshit. But mm-hmm. but he's also, you know, a really good friend. And if I ever was in distress, Peter would be one of the first people I'd call, and he would show up. I know he would. So yeah. Well, he's such a contradiction, right? People are often just great big masses of contradiction. It's hilarious. Oh, maybe I should, I, I'm just, uh, I'm just so sensitive to that message. Maybe I should, I don't know, embrace people who believe in that thing a bit more. I don't know. <laughs> if, if they're worth embracing, like Peter is. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I just think that um, if you really, I just think that most people who believe that are stuck believing it and wouldn't like to believe it and need, need a different message. But I also think that it should be articulated in a book where you can go. So you don't you don't think am I crazy? Am I the only one who thinks this? It's like no. Here is the argument laid out. Uh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now go about your business. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's good. Um, Depending on our temperament, sometimes it can be really quite comforting to read the worst case scenario. That's true. Then you have it. You have it laid out in front of you. There's this theory um, that, I don't know, some academic somewhere made, medieval historian, that Dante, um, when he wrote the Inferno and Purgatorio and um, Paradiso, Mm -hmm. that he actually, in the high, he was writing in the high Middle Ages, 1310, 1320, something like that, and that by outlining basically the worst case that the all of the options for a person who dies all of the options for them to go on into the afterleaf he laid them freaking out he laid out hell he laid out purgatory he laid out heaven that he actually set the groundwork for people to move into the renaissance because they they no longer had to worry about that shit, that nebulous shit. They could point to the book and say, well, we know what hell looks like and we know what purgatory looks like and we know what heaven looks like. Dante told us it's all imagined. It's, you know, vividly imagined. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Now we can go on to worldly things. Oh, you're absolutely. That holds up. That makes so much sense because the only way out of most things is through them. Yeah. Um, you've convinced me. I have to finish that book now. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I'll just try, I'll just try not to frown all the way through it. (laughs) But I think I might. (laughs) That's right. Well, take it, just, just read it on the toilet. (laughs) That's a really clever, that's a really clever suggestion. Um, (laughs) what are, what are books that you find yourself recommending? Um, 
So there is Alan Bennett, um, who is a English play- playwright. Mm-hmm. He wrote um, The Madness of George the Third. George the Third. Yeah, Madness mm-hmm. of George the Third. Uh, he wrote um, The History Boys. He wrote Lady in the Van. Um, his memoirs are just delightful to read. Um, they're so direct. And so they're just like a textbook um, for me in how to write. When I feel like I'm writing poorly, I pull out Alan ben- Bennett's memoirs, especially there's one called Writing Home, um, which is the middle one. There's, I think Writing Home is the middle one. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, and I find that the way he writes about life really set me up for writing good direct prose. Mm-hmm. And um, so I absolutely recommend Ellen Bennett. And he writes some really good fiction as well. There's a book of his called The Uncommon Reader, which I recommend all the time, mm-hmm. which is kind of an alternate history about Queen Elizabeth II becoming a passionate reader. And it's fantastic um, kind of um, love letter to the world of reading and love letter to the idea that reading passionately can make you a writer, can turn you into a writer. Um, So that's a lot of fun. I also recommend the Julie Phillips um, uh, biography of James Tiptree Jr., Mm -hmm. um, which is just, uh, so James Tiptree Jr. is one of my, one of the writers that I feel affected by a lot and that I go to when, when I have writing problems, I'll pull out her stories and, and, um, and it actually really helped me with a story problem that I was having last year. So, um, but the biography of her written by Julie Phillips, who is an American writer who lives in Holland, uh, is absolutely fantastic. So that's another one that I recommend a lot. That's great. I've written them down. And my dad gave cool. me a copy of The Uncommon Reader, so it is here somewhere. Oh, um, yeah. It's short. It's just a novella. It's great. I mean, <laughs> it may not be to your taste. He's pretty dry. He can be dry unless you like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I love it. I reread it often. <laughs> I just love his writing so much. He's so incisive. There are some paragraphs in there that just cut to the quick and, you know, 85 words and you're bleeding. It's fantastic. <laughs> I hope you like it. Oh, yeah. No, I'll, that, it's on the list. I'll need it after this Lugotti one for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, you definitely will. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll land on that one. Um, but it's really interesting. Well, um, James Tiptree Jr., she started writing in her 50s, right? Yeah. 50, like 58 or something ridiculous like that. Wow. Maybe 53. Um, yeah, she had an incredibly full life with, uh, she was very much an iconoclast. She never did what she was told or expected to do. And, um, uh, one of the cool things about it, and I think one of the character building things about her life that probably really affected the way she wrote fiction later in life is that when she was, um, when she was a child, when she was like six or eight, 
she traveled to Africa with her parents. Now, this would have been around about 1910, uh, and actually went on a trekking safari into um, the highlands of Kenya, where people were actually hunting gorillas. And um, then what she saw there, the fact that people were actually you know, hunting these, these, these humanoid, perfectly peaceful and wonderful creatures, I think really affected her. So, um, and she went on to like marry an alcoholic poet after she met him at her debutante ball, they eloped together. She, uh, uh, did wonderful things like joined joined the army for World War II and and served in Europe. Um, just a fascinating life. It's it's really interesting that um, someone like her is known for her writing when she started um, so late in life, and it's it's already like so much must have already happened to her, and yet what people will remember of her is is writing. Um, yeah. And it's interesting because, of course, I know you from writing. That's how I got in touch with you. Um, but already you've worked for so many different companies and in so many different other industries. Do you find that kind of, I don't know, that balance of what people know you from and what you think of yourself and the people closest to you think of you? Do you find that unusual? Mm. I think... I think that if we're writers, everything, everything that we have in our life um, up to the point where we write something informs what we write. Mm -hmm. And so considering that James Tiptree's work is just so very, very good and, and was, was, was so revolutionary at the time she wrote it and still a lot of it, you know, pushes the envelope even now. Um, she couldn't have written that when she was in her twenties, I couldn't, I couldn't have written anything, anything like what I've written when I was younger. It took me a really long time to learn to write. Um, and part of that was just that I could tell my writing wasn't good. Um, I could tell there were things that I was missing. And most of all, what I knew I was missing was any kind of idea about how human beings work and about how, how people behave and pe people's psychology. Um, that took a long time to develop was well into my forties before I figured that out. Hmm. And then I don't know. I think a lot of people are just late bloomers and that's not a bad thing. Well, in many respects, you were always a writer anyway. Yeah, for sure. Mm. I wouldn't have called myself a writer, but because my wife, Alex, is a writer. Mm -hmm. And um, and she's been writing all her life. She didn't have any problem writing when she was in her 20s. But it's not who I am. So we're just different kinds of different kinds of writers. Do you, do you learn from each other? 
Yeah. I mean, we critique each other. Um, she's usually when I give her a story, it's as good as I possibly can make it because what I don't want is for her to tell me about problems that I already know are there. Mm-hmm. Um, so she'll, when she critiques something, she'll always make it, give me ideas for making it better, but usually it's pretty fully formed. Um, and when I'm critiquing her stuff lately, it's been great, big, huge monster books. So it's hard to pinpoint it how exactly I've helped her make writing better, but I hope I have. (laughs) I think she would say I have. Yeah. It's fun. It's nice to share values with your partner. Mm -hmm. Um, There's absolutely, when we're sitting down at the keyboard, you know, I don't have to worry that my partner is thinking that I'm wasting my time. Yeah. Yeah. Just great. Mm. Well, I, I honestly feel like I could talk to you for way, way longer, but I've, I've had <laughs> such a lovely time talking to you. Um, oh, Leo, it's been really great. So that was Kelly Robson. God's Monsters and the Lucky Peach is out now with Tor. Uh, do check out. So many of her stories are available online. Uh, they're all amazing. So do check them out. And uh, as always, if you're a reader, writer, listener, editor, someone with something to say about the show, you want to come on it, you've got some feedback, you can always get in touch with me using losingtheplotpodcast at gmail.com. And I look forward to hearing from you. But that's all from me for now. So until next time, bye bye. <laughs>